Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we talked about Chilperic, taxes, and how the potential biases of those who record history can warp the reputations of rulers. This week, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite topics, natural disaster, disease, and personal tragedy and grief. Should be fun, right? Let's get into it with episode 26, A Scourge from God. The year is 580, and Gregory records for us the tragic events that befell the kingdoms. First up, floods. Rain continued for 12 days non-stop in central Gaul, devastating the area with massive flooding as the Loire and Allier rivers burst their banks. Cattle drowned, crops were ruined, and buildings were destroyed. After the rivers Saône and Rhône overflowed, even the city walls of Lyon were damaged. The worst part of this was the duration, with Gregory recording that the rains did not fully ease until September. Given how the flooding had damaged crops and prevented farmers from sowing more as the rain continued, famine would have been a danger. That same year, an earthquake shook Bordeaux in southern France, powerful enough to be heard over 300 kilometers away in Tours. Gregory even claims the city walls were in danger of collapsing, and the townsfolk were so afraid that they would be swallowed by the earth that they ran out to outlying villages in order to escape the carnage. In addition to this, there were the shakes in the Pyrenees, causing landslides that killed both locals and their all-important livestock. Whether these were the same quake or separate incidents is hard to determine, but the damage caused by these events would have been far more than any invading army could ever achieve. Unfortunately for those that escaped to the outlying villages in Bordeaux, they were not yet safe. A great fire erupted, apparently spreading so quickly through these villages around the city that the people didn't have time to save their recently harvested grain, and much was lost on the threshing floors. So that's another region whose food security was now threatened. Again, that same year, a massive fire engulfed Orléans. Gregory records that the city was gutted by the sudden blaze, and those who managed to save some of their belongings as they escaped were quickly stripped of them by opportunistic thieves who took advantage of the chaos and the desperate townsfolk huddled outside of the walls. But possibly the most serious was the epidemic. This was probably some form of bubonic plague which had devastated the Eastern Roman and Sassanid empires 30 years before, and was probably making the rounds in Western Europe. And yes, that is the same plague that would become the Black Death and devastate Europe all over again in the Middle Ages. I'll let you judge for yourselves, but a quick trigger warning, as Gregory's description of the plague is both graphic and detailed. Quote, Those who caught it had a high temperature, with vomiting and severe pains in the small of the back, 
their heads ached, and so did their necks. The matter they vomited up was yellow or even green. Many people maintained that some secret poison must be the cause of this. The country folk imagined they had boils inside their bodies, and this actually was not as silly as it sounds, for as soon as cupping glasses were applied to their shoulders or legs, great tumours formed, and when they burst and discharged their pus, they were cured. End quote. Now, it is important not to take Gregory's diagnosis or medical advice too seriously. This is not a great time for the medical profession. He claims that not only were people cured by bursting buboes, but also by drinking herbs and other potions. If you believe that, I have some snake oil to sell you, half price. Remember, this is the same man who would often try to cure his persistent illnesses by drinking concoctions made from the dust and shavings from the bodies of dead saints. The loss of life from this plague was catastrophic. In the urbanized eastern Mediterranean, it had wreaked untold destruction, killing an estimated fifth of the population of Constantinople, and even infecting Justinian himself, although the great emperor later recovered. Gaul was less urbanized, and thus probably got off easy comparatively, but the loss of life would still have been massive. I will let Gregory speak on his grief. Quote, it attacked the young children first of all, and to them it was fatal. And so we lost our little ones, who were so dear to us and sweet, whom we cherished in our bosoms and dandled in our arms, whom we had fed and nurtured with such loving care. As I write, I wipe away my tears and repeat once more the words of Job the Blessed. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. As it hath pleased the Lord, so it has come to pass. Blessed be the name of the Lord, world without end. end quote. The human tragedy of these events must not be dismissed. All too often, historical figures become like characters in a play, and it is important to remember that they were real people and these events affected them deeply, just as they would do to us today. We'll see more of this later, but for now I want to go back and re-examine the stories we have just been told. Because Gregory is recording them for posterity, so people can know what happened. But he is also doing so with another motive, as he so often does. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it all has to do with Christianity. See, Christians in this period, and periods before and after, had a strong obsession with doomsday. Of course, this persists in the modern day in some sects of the faith, but it was incredibly pronounced in the antique and late antique periods. From its birth as an offshoot of Judaism and into its maturity as a fully-fledged institutional and organized religion, Christianity had been predicting the end of the world. Now, as I've said before, we're going to skirt the theological debate and try to look at this from entirely a historical perspective. 
so we won't go into why this was so popular in the young religion. But for at least a few hundred years more, this doomsday fervor would burn on, inspiring a sense of immediacy and a predisposition to jump to conclusions about catastrophic events. This actually often worked in the favor of the church. During the devastating 3rd century crisis that engulfed the Roman Empire, a time of war, instability, natural disasters, food insecurity, and more, the Christians picked up a massive wave of converts. After all, these did seem like the end times for people living through the never-ending crises. These conversions throughout the period were a large part of what turned Christianity into a fully-fledged minority in the empire, rather than just a tiny eastern cult that it had previously been seen as. So, with this context in mind, let's look at what Gregory has just laid out for the reader. Not too long ago, he went on a long rant, laying out his criticisms of the leadership of the kings of his time, and their greed that eventually led to the constant civil wars. Before he talks about the epidemics, he even pauses to mention the kings were making preparations for another round of civil wars, before being interrupted by the plague. When talking of the fires around Bordeaux, he says they were sent from heaven. He even later repeats himself, saying, quote, There was no other apparent cause of this fire. It must have come from God. End quote. To underline the divine nature of these events, he records, quote, a bright light was seen to traverse the sky and then disappear in the east, end quote. After talking of the fire in Orléans, he also notes, quote, Somewhere in Chartres, blood poured forth when a loaf of bread was broken in two. At the same time, the city of Bourges was scourged by a hailstorm, end quote. Remember, Gregory firmly believed God acted on the earth to punish those who sinned and send signs to his faithful. And just in case he hasn't made himself crystal clear, let's recap what we have seen. Floods, check. Fires, check. Earthquakes, check. Death of livestock, check. Boils and pestilence, check. Thunderstorms of hail, check. If you're counting up, that's a lot of the markers of the apocalypse, all happening at once in the land of apparently evil kings. As it so often is, Gregory's moral is a little too obvious if you ask me. Act better, people. Stop doing your civil wars and stop with the unfair taxation. And if you're saying, but Nelson, aren't their firstborn sons still alive? Well... Let's catch up with Chilperic. During the epidemic, Chilperic fell ill, worrying the court and especially his wife. Without Chilperic, she would have a hard time holding on to power, especially in the middle of a civil war with Guntram and with a hostile court to the east. You can just imagine Brunhild licking her lips at the opportunity to pounce while Fredegund was vulnerable. 
But it was not to be. Chilperic began to recover, just like Justinian had before him. It appears the lethality rate for adults, especially rich ones who could afford to be looked after, wasn't as high as it was for children and the elderly. But speaking of children, the youngest son of Chilperic and Fredegund fell ill. Realizing what was happening, the pair rushed to have him baptized, without which he wouldn't be able to find salvation if he passed. As we will see in a moment, the illness of her son began to drive Fredegund into a frantic state of fear and guilt. It must be stated that for all of her faults, Fredegund always appeared to have love for her children. In fact, her murderous manipulations against Chilperic's other sons can be chalked up in a large part to the determination that her sons would inherit. But there was no one to manipulate here, no one she could bribe, threaten, or assassinate. She was forced to sit helplessly as her newborn son suffered. After a little while, he seemed to recover slightly, only for his older brother, a boy named Clodebert, to fall ill as well. With both of her sons on death's door, Fredegund began to lose it. What follows is the speech Gregory records. Before I repeat it, remember, these are Gregory's words. There is no way he could have known exactly what she said in these intimate moments. But still, the outcome is clear, and the speech is worth repeating, both for its interesting deconstruction of Fredegund and piety, and for what it reveals about Gregory's perspective. Anyway, after repenting her sins, Fredegund is speaking to Chilperic, who was likely still recovering from the disease himself. Quote, God in his mercy has endured our evil goings-on long enough. Time and time again, he has sent us warnings through high fevers and other indispositions. But we have never mended our ways. Now, we are going to lose our children. It is the tears of paupers which are the cause of their death, the sighs of orphans, the widow's lament. Yet we still keep on amassing wealth, with no possible end in view. We still lay up treasures, we who have no one to whom we can leave them. Our riches live on after us, the fruits of rapine, hated and accursed, with no one left to possess them once we are gone. Were our cellars not already overflowing with wine? Were our granaries not stuffed to the roof with corn? Were our treasure houses not already full enough of gold, silver, precious stones, necklaces, and every regal adornment one could dream of? Now we are losing the most beautiful of our possessions. Come, then, I beg you, let us set light to all of these inquietous tax demands. End quote. Now, remembering it was Gregory who wrote this, the focus on tax makes a lot of sense. But he must not have been too far off the mark. 
because Fredegund seems to have really burned the tax records for the city she owned, and made Chilperic burn some of his too. According to Gregory, she yelled at the king, quote, What are you waiting for? Do what you see me doing. We may still lose our children, but we shall at least escape eternal damnation. End quote. Now, there is a lot to unpack in this situation. First, it is an interesting example of the belief that persisted at the time that God actively punished those on earth who had done wrong. Fredegund clearly believed that there was a link between their greed and the diseases attacking her sons. Second, this is a perfect example of the way Gregory likes to write his characters. Gregory always believed that no one is truly evil, just as few people were wholly good. But he doesn't write characters as morally grey or complex in the moment. He often simply writes a passage of them doing evil next to a passage of them repenting and doing good. Even Fredegund, a woman he hates possibly more than even Chilperic, gets a redemption arc, even if it doesn't stick. This is a fascinating approach to character, and a reminder that literary analysis is always necessary with Gregory's work. It can't be viewed as simply a historical source. Now third, and most importantly, let's put aside the analysis for the moment and think about what Fredegund and Chilperic are actually going through. Their portrayal is the most personal we get, and it is deeply tragic. After burning the records, ordering no more should be made, and repenting their behaviour, They had nothing to do but wait. You can see how this behaviour fits in with Fredegund's pattern. Unable to simply sit still and watch her sons die, she made a desperate bid to influence the event in some way, any way that she could think of. But it was of no use. The younger son simply faded away, drained by the disease. The eldest they carried in desperation to the church of St. Maedard in Soissons on a stretcher. They set him down before the saint's tomb, and they made vows in an effort to help his recovery, though what they vowed is unknown. Lying in front of the tomb, Clodebert died, as Gregory records, quote, in the middle of the night, worn to a shadow, and hardly drawing breath, end quote. Despite all that they had done, one cannot help but feel sorry for the royal couple. Their loss was immense. No parent should have to outlive their child, nor watch as they suffer and waste away. Remember this picture of Chilperic and Fredegund as we move forward in our story. They will do more bad things, but remember that they were real people who thought that what they were doing was for the best. I'll try my best to always make sure that their motivations are clear, even when Gregory neglects to do so. Before we wrap up, it is worth noting that the disease also hit Guntram's court, though the story is upsetting in a different way. According to Gregory, 
and we can take this one with a massive pinch of salt. Guntram's supposedly evil queen, Osterchild, fell ill with the disease. On her deathbed, she asked for Guntram to promise to have her go out like Herod did, i.e. kill some people once she was dead. Specifically, she seems to have blamed her doctors, and, true to his word, Guntram had her two doctors executed upon her death. This story seems unlikely to me, and was probably a rumour Gregory seized upon due to his dislike of Osterchild. More likely, his good King Guntram wasn't so good, and had her doctors executed out of grief when she died. Either way, it is a much worse response to loss than what we just saw from the apparent villains of our story. Funny that. I know this has been a heavy episode, so let's end it here for this week. There's not too much to say about this week in conclusion. Sometimes bad things happen in history. It is good to be reminded that sometimes history isn't just a story. It was real life for these people. And just like real life, it is sometimes random, tragic, and unfair. Even with Gregory pulling the reins and trying to make morals and lessons, we can't escape the truth that sometimes tragedies just happen. See you next week.